But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There's an old saying that where God truly is, there is the fear of him. Where God truly is, there is the fear of him. And this is a truth we see brought out in both our Old Testament lesson about Gideon, which was selected to show sort of the similarities with this encounter we see in the gospel of Peter uh, falling at Jesus' knees. So let me just look at Gideon momentarily. Um, When Gideon realizes that he's been in the presence of God, God's presence mediated through his singular angel, right? This angel we see uh, in a handful of places in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, who is somehow this sort of very direct conduit and manifestation of God's own presence to direct his people. The moment Gideon realizes um, that he's been in the presence of God through this angel, he kind of just melts down, right? Judges chapter 6, verse 22 Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And we know he's speaking in fear because the very next thing God says to him is, No, do not be afraid. You will not die. If you know your Old Testament history, you can see why Gideon might be afraid, right? When God makes things holy there is a, and exposes them, there is a fear of, a real fear of dying. Even Moses, like the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, um, When God showed himself to him, recorded in Exodus chapter 33, God says, oh, you can't see my face. No one will see my face and live. Even Moses, right? And when God makes things holy, like the mountain of Sinai, when he's present to Moses, the the temple or the tabernacle, we see a handful of incidences in the Old Testament where someone rebellious or uh, disbelieving against God touches that thing and gets sick or sometimes even dies. So Gideon's fear is founded, right? God isn't saying, oh no, you didn't have any need to worry in the first place. He's saying, oh, in this particular case, do not fear. You were right to be fearful, but do not fear. And we see a very similar thing with Peter. The Lord Jesus tells him to keep fishing in spite of no catch uh, the, in, the early, in the night and the early morning hours of that day. And so despite everything Peter knew about fishing, right? I mean, I know only a very tiny bit of fishing, but I know mid-morning is not your best time probably to go out. Uh, and even though he goes against what he knows about fishing, there's this miraculous haul. But we know it's a miracle because we're reading it in the Gospel of Luke. Peter's just experiencing this. It's like all these fish coming in and I love these little eyewitness details that only a real gospel could have. Like when it says, and Peter signaled to his, uh, his, what was the word that was used to his, um, was it colleagues? Um, Partners. Signaled to his partners to to come help them. Like there's this sort of picture, there's just too much happening too fast, he can't even get words out. He just signals to them, you know. And James and John come scrambling out in boat number two and they fill their boats and they're sort of worried that they're going to sink. And it's almost as if Peter has this sort of moment. It says, when Peter saw it, which is a a funny turn of phrase, right? Because his eyes were open the whole time. He was loading the fish into the boat. But when he saw it, when he kind of, the excitement and the buzz paused for just a moment for him to realize, wait a second, Jesus made this catch happen, 
Right? We expect that to be the case because we're reading the life of Jesus after the event. Peter's just fishing and he's just saying, oh my gosh, look at all these fish. And then all of a sudden he realizes, he saw it, and he realizes, uh, Jesus told us to come out. He, he, he made this happen. Who, who could make this happen? And he's kind of putting two and two together very fast. Well, only the one who, who made lakes and fishes in the first place, right? Peter is the one who would go on in the ministry of Jesus, to, the first to confess Jesus as the Son of God. So Peter's getting it that this is only God and his real power could sort of draw fish together in a net miraculously when there were no fish there, he knew for sure. And so Peter realizes that he is in the presence of God. He's actually got God standing in his little boat. And like Gideon, for Peter, the realization is overwhelming, right? Gideon kind of melts down, and, and Peter melts down. He falls among the fish. And I love, again, this detail. He has his head at Jesus' knees. What a tender picture, right? It's, it's drawing near, but then what words come out of his mouth? Depart from me. This is a surprise thing for him to say. It's not intuitive. I don't, think, I don't know if that's the first thing that would come out of my mouth. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Um, I've thought uh, long and hard about why does he say depart from me? And I, I think there's reasons there I don't understand yet. Um, why would he bring up his own sins? What did he recognize in Jesus that sort of prompts this very strange exclamation, right? You'd think miraculous hole of fish like, oh my gosh, you're awesome. You know, just this sort of just excitement, but it's not excitement. It's a confession of his sin. Putting together what we know about God's character and what else we see about Jesus in his ministry, I believe that Peter became aware of the holiness of God in this moment. That it's holiness that exposes sin. The holiness of God the Son. And holiness is fundamentally opposed to sinfulness. Uh, the reason that in the Old Testament people got sick and died when they touched holy things was because holiness has this sort of um, attacking, uh, sort of eradicating effect on sinfulness. It just kind of blows it away. And here's Peter, four feet away from his boat, I mean, or a couple feet away because he falls right at his knees with the God who is holy. And I think he has this sense of, you're a holy God. It's this, this terror, this fear, um, which is to be distinguished from just being scared. It, it's like scared, but a bit different. But it's, it's fear that this holiness has the power to, to come against him, right? To... to like the holiness in the Old Covenant, to eradicate him, to, to lay a sentence of judgment of which he would be found guilty and be a goner. Where God truly is, there is the fear of him. Gideon saw God and was full of fear. Peter saw God and was full of fear. The question in this gospel then has provoked for me to put before you this morning is, um, do we feel that fear? Even a little the holy fear that would actually be so overawed, the New Testament word here, astonished, that we'd, be so, that we'd be inclined to say, Lord, I don't know if I can bear you coming close to me. Right? That's what Peter's saying in effect. And actually, 
not just to sort of speak about our sins, like, yes, I, I know I'm a sinner, and I also have car insurance. Like, these are just facts, but to be horrified at sin. Oh, no, 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 God, I have sins. Like the, the gospel is putting this forward as a, a right way of perceiving our sin in the face of God's holiness. If you're like me, the answer to the rhetorical question, do we feel this fear? The answer is hardly ever. I wish I did feel this fear more. I wish we all felt this fear more. Because even though we don't see angels, it is the case that we are in the presence of angels, just like Gideon was. There are angels who guard the churches. We see that in Revelation, right? There's an angel of each church. That, and the church has understood that, that whenever the church gathers, there is an angel watching over us right now. And yet, do we, do we sort of tremble at that holiness? When we receive Holy Communion, Jesus isn't just coming into our boat, right? He's coming into our, our lives, into our hands, into our hearts. He's actually drawing much nearer to us than he was to Peter in that moment. Do we have some sense of holy fear about this drawing near? Peter could hardly bear it. One of the things that um, I'm ashamed of in myself when I look back at my life is times when I've been far too careless and lackadaisical about the things of God. And whether it's his sacrament, his word, his people, right, the church, all of the things of God, these are all holy things, made holy by the presence of the Holy One himself, the Holy Spirit living in each of you, the Holy Spirit communicating through his word, ministering the body of the Son to us. And one of the most spiritually dangerous things that I repent of having done in my own life is joking about holy things, being flippant, sort of ironic or sarcastic, or because a joke hardens the heart. And it seems so little, it seems so small, but in the olden days, that was called sacrilege. Right? We don't use that word anymore, but that just means to make light of holy things. The word holy in Hebrew is kadosh. It also means heavy. Holiness is a weight. And we should treat it weightily, not lightly. Um, I believe that when we begin to perceive even uh, a portion of God's holiness in, in the various ways he is manifest to us, but maybe especially in the sacrament, um, we are rightly reduced to, to trembling and, and not jokes. A lot of the saints, after they'd have communion, would sort of just sit in quiet for an hour, kind of stunned. <laughs> with a sense like, wow, I've just received the body of Christ into my body and into my soul. Um, God is called a consuming fire, right? This is a fear-inducing image, rightly. So there's a, an author named Annie Dillard who puts this very memorably. It's a quote um, that I remembered and I wanted to share with you from her book, uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk. I've not read it, I just know this quote. Um, she writes this, and it, it's a little hard on us, but I think we can take it. Why do people in church sometimes seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? <laughs> Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT. 
It's madness to wear straw hats or velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. I love that image. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flesh. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. I love that line. The waking God may draw us to where we can never return. And this is sort of the the great twist of the gospel today, the great twist of God's holiness, is that Gideon isn't struck down. Right? St. Peter isn't just vaporized by God's holiness, which is what he's sort of afraid of. Jesus says, do not fear. He himself is not vaporized. He's led into a journey of becoming a fisher of men and a lifetime of discipleship and actually being made holy in the pattern of his master, right? We know from church history that Peter died on a cross like Jesus in the year 63. The holiness of God had an eradicating effect, but it wasn't on Peter's life and well-being. It was on the sin and the warpedness and the brokenness of Peter, right? This is sort of the new revelation of God's goodness, first in the Old and then in the New Testament, is that the holiness of God, which would by all rights just crush us all. That's what we say when we confess we are deserving of hell. It's the consuming fire crushing us. That's the, what we would deserve. But that isn't what has happened, right? We actually have received communion. We've received the Spirit into our lives. We hear the Holy Word, and we're still here. We're still alive. Not just alive, but better than we used to be, forgiven. The grace and the virtues of God beginning to be exercised and manifest in our life. That something is being eradicated, but it's not us. It's not our individual selves. It's our sin and our, the scars of our sin. So that's why sort of it's this sort of twofold thing. Abject fear and then the, the command, don't be afraid. Right? That's sort of this beautiful tension in our relationship with God. You are right to be afraid and don't be afraid. It's this sort of accelerator and brake at the same time. That we should draw near to the Lord. We shouldn't run away. We shouldn't ask him to actually leave us. Right? But we should approach, to use St. Paul's inspired phrase, with fear and, and trembling. To say, Lord, I do want to draw near you. And I recognize this is a very heavy, heavy, holy thing that I do when, when I receive the sacrament of the body and blood of your son. This is a, a heavy thing we do when we listen to your word and I need to take it seriously. These are holy things, heavy things. And that what's the great sort of miracle of the gospel is when we receive the mercy of God, which we receive out of his benevolence towards us, it doesn't take away all fear. It's not like, well, we have fear and then we're reconciled and we have no fear. Being in relationship with God, it should just alter the character of our fear because now there's also love involved. And one of the verses which holds this together in perfect beauty is in Psalm 130. It says, there is forgiveness with you. That's the gospel, right? There's forgiveness with you. Therefore, you shall be feared. Which is, which is different than the order we might ordinarily put it. We'd maybe think, well, you have fear and then you're forgiven and then maybe you're not afraid. The Bible says, no, no. The fact that his holiness hasn't punished us forever, but it actually has led to our forgiveness, actually 
changes, but it sort of catalyzes and even increases our fear in this beautiful way. It sort of allows fear to become part of worship, right? That we're worshiping the God that hasn't crushed us, that has shown us his love and his mercy. There's forgiveness with him, which makes him even more kind of impressive and mysterious and inspiring. And so fear, holy fear, should always be a part of the Christian life. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. Amen.